Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the Holy Grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Scott Buckler. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Precision Medicine Forum podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Nina Fuller-Chevelle, who is the co-chair of the British Society for Integrative Oncology. Nina joined me today to talk a little bit about integrative medicine, but also to look at the role that it plays within a patient pathway and how all aspects of care can support including precision oncology and emotional support and therapies can play a vital role with the patient. So uh, first of all, uh, Nina, I would just like to give us a little brief overview of of your work with the BSIO um, and what the BSIO uh, currently is working on and what it does to support uh, the role of integrative oncology. Sure, so BSAO or British Society for Integrative Oncology is the leading professional organisation for oncology professionals um, in the UK and that covers a whole multidisciplinary range so anybody really involved in delivering cancer care across all three sectors, you know, NHS, private care and charities as well. And we really are aiming to bring together multiple disciplines to really work together to be able to deliver effective integrative care. Hopefully, our mission is to for it to be available to everybody diagnosed uh, with cancer across the UK in the future. And the way we do it is really through three main streams. Uh, the first one is clinical practice. So talking a little bit about Um, creating guidelines and disseminating guidelines and the best evidence that there is within this particular space to foster good clinical practice. The second part is education, so providing education including monthly webinars as well as our annual meeting, as well as the upcoming postgraduate degree in integrative cancer care, so that people can really learn about the evidence base and about how to practically use integrative oncology in their clinics, wherever they might be. And the third bit is really research. So unsurprisingly, we need more research as we usually do in science. So we aim to support um, any educational organizations or academic institutions or just researchers out there who want to do integrative oncology work, as well as disseminating their findings to the public and to our professionals. If some of our subscribers and listeners um, joining us today wanted to understand integrative um, oncology um, and integrative oncology medicine, uh, how would it shape or how does it play a role alongside precision medicine? So in essence, really, how can integrative medicine and, and precision medicine work and harness together for patients? Well, this is actually, in a way, what I do every day in my private practice synthesis clinic. So it's a perfect question to ask. I think it's worth defining some of the terms that we use here. So some people might not be familiar with integrative oncology. And integrative oncology is a rational synthesis of the best of conventional medicine, which will include precision oncology, as well as nutrition, lifestyle, psychoemotional well-being support, and evidence-informed complementary therapies. And effectively, it seeks to support the whole individual across the cancer care continuum, as well as quite often their families and ecosystems within which they live, 
to enable them to have the best quality of life to support resilience and maximize really any benefit from treatment. On a very practical level, I'll give you just two very simple examples of how integrative oncology can input into precision oncology. And this is, for example, use of uh, drugs such as alpesilib. So alpesilib is a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And one of the main side effects, which quite often limits its use, is hyperglycemia, so high blood sugars. Now, what we actually know and what there are really good publications on now is that outside of just using drugs like metformin, for example, we can use low carbohydrate diets and exercise to be able to achieve better glycemic control, better blood sugar control in these patients and enable them to stay on treatment longer. And in fact, my co-chair, um, Dr. Penike Hayoglu, who's a consultant clinical oncologist, actually presented a case of hers at Integrative Oncology UK 2022, covering exactly that. And her patient is one of the longest maintained patients on PI3K therapy. So that's one example. Second example, of course, is that very well known now gut microbiome immunotherapy link, right? We've all heard that gut microbiomes can play a role in response to checkpoint inhibitor therapy and across a number of different cancers. And a recent article in Science in 2021 by Spencer et al. showed that patients who were undergoing treatment for their melanoma with NTPD1 therapy responded better and had better progression-free survival when they ate adequate fiber. What a low-intensity intervention we could give to really support outcomes with you know, expensive therapies, expensive targeted therapies that we really want to optimize patients for. Just so I'm, I'm sort of understand this right, we're looking at a patient who's undergoing a therapy, just had a recent diagnosis of a cancer at stage one, stage two. They're undergoing um, uh, therapy. They've got a patient plan together in order for to look at their, whether it's a chemotherapy, what their plan is to support them with this disease and to, to tackle this disease. So really, we're also what yourselves are doing uh, the, at the society is to look at the ways that we can look at nutritional aspects of their diets. We look at the support that can give them as part of this wider journey. Is there, when you touched on there a little bit about, obviously, when it came down to, to diet, when it came down to particular aspects of it, some of the work you talked about there with your co-chair, as this this has been presented already, and this is there's, there's quite a bit of evidence around this, is there going forward around some of this work? Yes, yeah, so certainly with PI3 kinase inhibitors, has been a really good recent review that's outlined the treatment algorithm, how to use think some of those therapeutic diet like carbohydrate restrictions and exercise to maintain people on PI3K inhibitors. So there there's definitely been a lot of interest in it because. It's wonderful to have these beautiful targeted drugs, but as we know, they all carry toxicities associated with them. And if we can buffer those toxicities with integrative oncology as a whole big picture view and actually support the whole ecosystem, then we will find that we will get people staying on these treatments for longer and hopefully getting better treatment outcomes because they're able to tolerate treatment better. From a health practitioner perspective then, at what stage has this come into a patient's plan and how how is that referred? How, how How is that kind of navigated, for want of a better term, when it comes to the care plan? 
A very good question. And at the moment in the UK, there isn't really a very good pathway, which is what we are trying to change. So in the US, it's very well established. You will see really major cancer centers, you know, Banner MD Anderson, Memorial Sloan Kettering. They all have integrative oncology on their websites as part of what they offer. Um, and they have integrative oncology input into their MDT, which is a multidisciplinary team. So in the US, it's a very well-established model. But of course, we then have to think about the fact that it's a private insurance funded model. In the UK, it's less well-established. And in Germany, they have quite often big, relatively big hospitals with departments that are involved in delivering this sort of care. So we are kind of sandwiched in the middle. And at the moment, we don't really have people who are qualified to necessarily deliver integrative oncology within the NHS at the moment. There isn't necessarily someone who we say, okay, he is an integrative oncology person. So there are people who have gone on to do education within that. So for example, we have uh, within our BSIO council, people like um, some of the oncology nurses who have gone on to have further training and who bring this expanded toolkit to their practice within the NHS. But there is no formal pathway at the moment. And that's what we are aiming to hopefully change with the postgrad diploma and masters in integrative cancer care, because what we want to create is leaders who are we are able to then feed into um, effectively across all three sectors, the charity, NHS and private sectors. Mm. At the moment, most integrative oncology work is kind of done by aware healthcare practitioners within the NHS who quite often will refer to charities. Now, private sector is different. So, for example, there are organizations such as Genesis Care who already incorporate things like exercise-based rehabilitation. They have well-being advisors on their teams, and that's relatively well established within their care pathway. But within the NHS, it is definitely a tricky place to navigate. And certainly within my own private practice, again, I, I'm working outside the NHS now, I used to be an NHS doctor. But we have really good cross-referral pathways between private oncology providers and us, and we communicate and we become part of the extended care team. Tell us a little bit more about this postgraduate course. And- well, it's currently in its own, its own starting point, point at the moment. So we're looking at academic partners at the moment, and we are applying for some funding to develop it. But effectively, it will be a course that will be both either part-time or full-time, and it will be delivered online. And it would aim to cover within it the three core disciplines, really lifestyle medicine and cancer care, which will cover things like nutrition, physical activity and sleep. Then we will talk about you know, psycho-emotional well-being and psychosocial determinants of health within the uh, cancer care setting. And that will include psychosexual problems. So that will be the second module. And the third module is going to cover the evidence surrounding specific complementary therapies in cancer care so that we can properly assess based on the evidence what the risk benefit is and what is okay to use and what isn't okay to use and doesn't have a good evidence basis behind it. And then the fourth component is going to be a student-selected component, which will allow us to take people from different backgrounds, so say an oncology nurse, as well as an oncologist, as well as a GP, maybe a physiotherapist, and then allow them to do a student-selected study within their own area of expertise. So that that will be very much tailored to their professional background. And the aim of it is really to foster proper, high-standard, evidence-informed integrative oncology practice in the UK. One of the biggest things that the BSIO do um, is, is look at 
the or provide the healthcare professionals with access to information and research around existing treatment problems. But there's obviously a big element of that which talks about the way in which that there is a, a number of alternative and complementary therapies that are promoted, whether that's on social media or that's in um in you know in just general public in forums and Facebook and social media. Um, and that's become quite prevalent, um, and certainly on Twitter. I, I know quite recently, uh, one of our um, one of our followers on LinkedIn, a prominent former breast surgeon, Dr. Liz O'Riordan, uh, and now author, has constantly stated that some therapies in, involving diets and stuff are, are providing false information and giving a, a false picture of of what can be done. So, how do you, in relation to the BSIO? identify and support the uh, well i suppose the proper evidence and information and actually debunk any of the other complementary therapies that do not support uh, cancer treatment obviously it's a tricky balance to strike ultimately we are a professional organization talking to professionals we know they're unfortunately at the moment to educate the general public this yeah. is not something that we can do as a professional organization so our best line really is to educate the people who are going to be talking to cancer patients so your nurses your oncologists your gps yeah nutrition professionals who might be talking to someone and tell them about what the weight of evidence is and about what things are not supported by evidence or hearsay or sound bites i mean the amount of really unsubstantiated sound bites within the space and also the amount to be honest with you scott of lack of awareness of evidence on the other side of things yeah there are people who will say to me there's no evidence for x and i'm going go away into PubMed, go and do a proper search with these terms and you tell me come back to me and tell me there's no evidence and i can tell you so far 100 percent of people have not come back to me saying there is no evidence on something so there is there is problems on both sides. There's things being put out on social media across different health pathways. I mean, celery juice for everybody, right? On Instagram sometimes or TikTok or whatever it is. You know, and it, it's not necessarily unique to cancer care. It's of course dangerous in any chronic health condition, full stop, to rely on information that's not provided by people who actually deliver healthcare and who are not trained to do so. So I think that's one problem. The other problem is, of course, there's still things like um, you get occasionally letters or sound bites from people who are supposed to know better and who know how to access PubMed saying there is no evidence for something when there is. So what we aim to do as BSIO is trying to sit in the middle and say, okay, let's look at it objectively. Let's look at the what the evidence says and let's look at the risk-benefit ratio. Because the other thing that we've got to realize is that the bar for the evidence can might not be a randomized control trial here because randomized control trials and complex interventions are not this not the right way of studying them so people get obsessed with a randomized control trial which is by necessity designed for a simple intervention single intervention right or if you do a you know two by two by two designs you might study multiple interventions or multi arms but generally the randomized control trial seeks to study a simple intervention. And for that, it's a very good tool. 
But for complex interventions, it might not be the right way of studying something. And for certainly multimodal interventions, it might not be the right way of studying it. So here, looking at realist research, maybe even N of 1 trials and other things like that might be a more better way of studying problems like that. And sometimes it just drives me a little bit mad as a scientist sitting in the background going, RCT is everything. I'm going, yes, it's a great fork, but can you eat a soup with a fork? No, you can't. So it's a tool, it's a really, really important tool, which works amazingly well, but it is not the be-all and the end-all either. You had the integrative oncology event back in May, mm. and there was a number of subject areas within that. Um, you've, talked, you've touched on a little bit already, um, gut uh, microbiomodulation, for instance. There was an aspect that talked um, in there about uh, areas around the phys- physical activity, as I would call them, for instance, uh, yoga um and the role that that plays mm. in terms of yoga and yoga, yoga therapy and cancer care from a practical information and safety considerations i think the name of the the area was the the actual um session you you had um dr lorenzo cohen i believe he is the co-author of the anti-cancer living book and professor in clinical cancer prevention and director of the integrative medicine program at the university of texas tell us a little bit about um, you're also joined by Lee Liable, who's a mind-body specialist. Tell us a little bit about their work and 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 the role of that. Because uh, my wife, for instance, is a yoga enthusiast, as as, as many other people have turned to yoga in the last three or four years. But I do hear more and more people looking at the role of yoga and physical activity in supporting themselves when going through cancer treatment for whatever stage or whatever cancer that may be. Explain a little bit more about how that has has been vital or can play a vital role in, in supporting cancer treatment. I guess the first thing is that's important is to define, I guess, yoga and yoga therapy. And so, you know, yoga is kind of the broad umbrella term within which yoga therapy sits. And, you know, your average yoga teacher who will be in a yoga studio has received between 200 to 300 hours of yoga training. And they may or may not have any qualifications to work with someone with a cancer diagnosis. So it's important to know that when we're thinking about referring someone who has had a cancer diagnosis, we either refer them to a yoga teacher with specific cancer training, if they are more in the survivorship level, or if they're actually going through treatment and they require support with someone with much more in-depth training, we're looking at really at a yoga therapist. And yoga therapists receive a total of around about 850 hours of training, okay, across the different medical problems. They understand contraindications very well. Okay. And they understand how to work well with um, healthcare professionals. And certainly within the UK, the Minded Institute led by Heather Mason has been really pioneering yoga therapy. And so these are, I guess, the two things to be aware of, because quite often when people go, go and do yoga, I'm like, well, what kind of yoga and with whom and what are you talking about? What are the objectives of that from that perspective? But both yoga and yoga therapy can be incredible tools to use. And actually, a 2017 Cochrane review concluded there was moderate quality evidence for yoga being beneficial for 
quality of life in cancer patients, as well as reducing cancer-related fatigue, as well as looking at relieving anxiety and depression and supporting people with sleep problems. So you can see how many benefits you can derive from actually a single intervention if it's done well. Mm. Um, and we know there's been randomized control trials around that time as well. And yoga to me is much more, of course, as a, as a yoga teacher myself and a trainee yoga therapist, um, yoga is much more than just movement. Movement is an important part of it, but also it is a way of regulating your nervous system. So there's things like breathing exercises. Breathing is what I was going to touch on. Yeah, that's a big aspect of it, isn't it? The breathing and the way that you can moderate your breathing can support um, different aspects of your system. Absolutely. And also mindfulness quite often is a part of things like the yoga therapy plan. So if you come in and you do a one-to-one session with a yoga therapist, you will incorporate a number of different modalities within that. So within the part of umbrella of yoga, yes, it can include what's called asana or poses or figures, whichever you want to call them. So it will include physical work, but it will also very much include breath work, mindfulness, speaking about emotional regulation, speaking about maybe making sense of things. So it's it's a really broad-based support system. That's that's an integral part, isn't it, of, of, of this treatment, really? Because, you know, somebody being diagnosed with cancer, and we've all had somebody we know, or friends or family, I know I have, I lost a, a very good friend four or five years ago to it, and... Um, uh, at the time, and for, unfortunately, during his chemotherapy, he, he created a, a series of blood clots which which ended his life. Um, and he on stage four for for stomach um, large intestine uh, cancer. But what what strikes me more now, as 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 unfortunately, cancer plays a more prevalent role in people's lives is that the aspect of the well-being and the understanding of whether it's yoga or the meditation aspects of it have often been quite dismissive in the past for as being kind of out there or whatever you want to to label it as but but we know more and more people who are either suffering with cancer at the moment or going through it through friends and family who who really rely on such practices as this to to support them with their mental health and well-being and breathing and 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 therefore it's to dismiss it is is quite uh, is quite ignorant but what one thing that sort of brings me to slightly is just just touching on some of the program that you had back in in may you've got a fantastic session at the end of the day that you had um with elizabeth thompson um and lee's uh Alashula, I want to say, but that was talking about the ASCO report into complementary and integrative medicine within patients that they were reluctant uh, from a clinician point of view to actually talk about the use of integrative medicine because they didn't feel knowledgeable about the risks and benefits. You've touched on earlier, in, very early on in the podcast about understanding and being able to get more people to understand integrative oncology. Do you think the reluctance, and it doesn't detail that more of the findings, but is there reluctance because of the lack of evidence or is there reluctance because there's too much, it's a myriad of areas such as yoga, nutrition, etc., that they feel uncomfortable clinically being able to advise on that? Is it a reluctance from a clinician to delve into an area that they're not familiar with? And is that why it's a, it's not actually 
forthcoming when they're speaking with patients. Absolutely, Scott. And actually, that's you've hit the nail on the head there with the latter. It's definitely the latter. It's quite often not the lack of evidence. Yes, we absolutely need more research across certain things, but it's usually not the lack of evidence. It's lack of awareness of evidence and lack of confidence in being able to identify it and use it appropriately. And yeah. if you think about it, you know, think about my training. So I've got two degrees from Cambridge. My first one is natural sciences. My second one is medicine. So when I did medicine, I had two hours of nutrition training and I did not get any further as I was training in acute medicine, in general medicine in the hospital. So you can see if someone's had two hours of their training, but years upon years within pharmaceutical medicine or understanding how to refer for surgery, etc., they're going to have a very different comfort level. Now, I went out and I have other postgraduate qualifications in nutrition, so I feel very confident, comfortable talking about this. But of course, we cannot expect a clinician to suddenly go, right, I'm going to go and do a postgrad diploma in nutrition what we want to do is we want to be able through the postgrad diploma as well as the monthly webinars to provide that kind of education in terms of bite-sized chunks so people understand at a snapshot what might the evidence look like how they can incorporate it you know some simple recommendations about including more fiber in people's diets when they're being treated with NTPD1 therapies you know going for the rainbow making sure they get adequate side of things like that is really important but it's about saying to people this is practical this is what you can do in a short consultation and if you don't know come to us or refer and certainly that's really really important because there's going to be a number of practitioners who can help so refer for yoga therapy if you see someone is struggling and they are interested in exploring it talk to them about it as an option you don't need to be a yoga therapy expert to be able to say to someone there are things you could explore that have good evidence behind them i know that the 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 bs I owe, uh, including yourself, some Penny uh, and a number of your committee members. I'm just looking at some of them now, obviously, Professor Robert Thomas, Catherine Zollman, Dr. Carol Granger, yourself, Dr. Caroline Hoffman, obviously um, uh, thoroughly um, uh, knowledgeable and, and um, educated and, and got the background to to be able to speak about this from a scientific point of view. Am I, am I, would I be bold enough to say that sometimes there's a naivety from some people working in a clinical capacity towards this area from their side that they're not part of the kind of clinical excellence that <laughs> exists and, and that I've come across in my time? Is there still a naivety around integrative oncology that there isn't, there isn't uh, enough um, support given to it from, from the clinical area or is, Am I totally wrong? Because it gives the sense to me that there may be a dismissive approach by some clinical people towards it. Would I be would I be wrong or right in saying that? No, I think you'd be right in saying that, Scott. And I think that you know, like you said, we mentioned previously, you know, the US has had this as a part of their healthcare for quite some time, and for them, it's it's a quite an established thing. And even in the US, uh, the recent research presented ASCO shows that we're missing a third of the people talking to the integrative oncologist about what they're doing in the background in terms of complementary integrative care. And clinicians are not comfortable talking about it. So that's in the US. You know, here we are even less comfortable, but that's what we are aiming to change as BSIO. Because to me, if we're going to be running 
these trials and these reviews, and if we're going to be generating this amount of evidence, needs to be clinically useful and needs to benefit patients. And at the moment, being very honest with you, you know, those personalized care plans are not really care plans. They're lucky, we are lucky if it's a personalized medicine plan. But quite often the care bit gets forgotten. And as we know, you know, what you've gone through with people who are close to you, you know, I'm a cancer survivor myself. So I know that a cancer diagnosis permeates all levels of you being. So I was diagnosed with a grade three hertic positive breast cancer at the age of 33, and I had a three and a half year old daughter. So the impact of that on my ecosystem and what I needed to put in place to be able to get my child through this untraumatized, as well as get myself through treatment is really important. And for us, I think there is the massive potential about taking the best of conventional medicine, like precision or cordial precision medicine, and marrying that up with truly personalized, science-based, integrative interventions to really support the whole human being. Because no matter what amazing drug you have, if someone isn't well enough to receive it, you're not going to be able to get them on this drug or on this trial. So to me, we are missing the plot if we're not taking care of the person's physical and emotional well-being, because actually that's going to impact their care pathway. And as we all know, if we are working with cancer patients, progression-free survival and overall survival are important, but not at any cost. If you speak to a cancer patient, they will vast majority of them will tell you, yes, of course I want to survive, but I don't want to do it at all costs. I want to have a reasonable quality of life. And that quality of life is paramount. Finally, is that... The quality of life that you mentioned there and the patient plans, you talked about whether or not it's, it's appropriate with the, the appropriate medicine within the patient plan, but a patient plan needs a, a rounded approach from everything you've talked about there, whether it's nutrition to exercise to the well-being to support family members to a standard of living to, to be able to continue to work or not to work, whatever it may be. Do you think that from a from a cancer perspective in the UK I'm speaking about more more so here do you think that the joined up approach on behalf of a hospital or wherever the uh, patient may be currently receiving treatment do you think that's lacking wider resources and support and does there need to be a more joined up approach within that particular region so for instance a manchester or a leeds area are we looking to bring in your primary care secondary care but also bringing nutritionists and is that severely lacking do you believe when it comes to a patient cancer treatment at the moment yeah absolutely scott and i think this is where we need to take the opportunity that might be provided by these new integrated care systems that are coming in to be able to widen the offering and to be able to make it truly joined up so thinking about uh, an integrated service that could have good communication, not just between secondary and primary care, but also have things like group interventions, thinking about what's cost-effective for the NHS, right? Group interventions are quite often cost-effective. Group yoga therapy, group health coaching to help people make those health behavior changes. Because as we know, just telling someone to eat more fiber or eat a more anti-inflammatory diet or whatever it is you want to say or exercise more it does not translate into action so resourcing it and supporting it is really important 
And it does need to be clinically led. So certainly my clinic is led by me as a medical doctor. So, and I directly interact with clinicians, you know, including all the oncology teams of the patients that I look after. So it does need to be clinically led. And I think if we have this really good integration across the board, actually we're going to minimize, you know, unnecessary admissions, unnecessary presentations. We're going to maximize people's quality of life. But it does require structured thinking and being open to engaging people outside the traditional NHS roles, as well as one of the other things that I hear a lot from my um, NHS colleagues is upskilling the workforce we already have. Yeah. There was an interesting trial, actually, the um, that they ran with um, screening programs where actually if someone was going in for their mammography and they were given an opportunity to interact with a health coach who, and you could see that people's BMIs, people's cardiometabolic parameters were significantly better after they had that intervention. So using any opportunity where someone interacts with healthcare to potentially refer them into a path where that promotes their health actively can absolutely serve us across the board. And we also know that even when we're having a growing population of cancer survivors, people who are not in active treatment, yet for that population, nothing is being offered, actually. So you get patient-directed follow-up. But in terms of actually rehabilitating someone post their treatment, and they might be ending up with significant long-term effects, maybe it's radiotherapy, long-term side effects, maybe it is still residual chemo brain or or chemo-related fatigue. There is no real service for those people. And I think we can absolutely create those and create those in cost-effective group settings and also buffer our NHS against long-term problems. So if you've got these patients coming out who are unwell, but they're not unwell enough to be admitted, if we optimize even simple things like their cardiometabolic profile, we're going to reduce the amount of cardiovascular disease presenting to the NHS in 10, 20 years' time. So it's about thinking, how do we integrate and how do we take the long-term view across the cancer care continuum and who do we need to deliver this and, and how cost-effective it does need to be? And starting with just pilots, you know, certainly we run, um, we are starting some of the pilots at the clinic in terms of research programs, you know, do the pilot, employ people who know what they're talking about, who understand the evidence and know how to, how to deliver it effectively to people, um, study it. Do the you know long-term condition questionnaires, do their quality of life scores, look at the admissions and their presentations to healthcare, see if it's cost-effective. And I can tell you that the data is suggesting across the board, certainly, again, more American data rather than ours, but that it is a cost-effective way of reducing long-term problems in, in patients across the cancer care continuum. The British Society for Integrative Oncology um what have you got going on in the remainder of the year? You've just touched about some pilots and, and stuff going forward. What have you got uh, on the horizon for the remainder of the year? So two exciting things. We might There might be a book proposal in the works, so watch the space from that perspective. So we've, there might be some interesting things coming from that perspective. But the, our main big baby really is the, the postgraduate education because to me, unless we actually have this degree out there educating professionals across the board, we're not going to be able to deliver the workforce to staff the integrative oncology movement that we are hoping to create. 
So that's really the bulk of our work. We're going to be, of course, working up to Integrative Oncology 2023, our annual meeting, as well as delivering our monthly webinars on a number of things. So what we've got coming up, we've got a pain webinar um, coming up, uh, again, looking at pain more holistically, looking at different options rather than just looking at the standard analgesic ladder and how do we look at people's mindset around pain. Uh, we've got a psychosexual health webinar. Again, that's something that gets forgotten about quite significantly um, and can really impact people's lives. Um, and also a whole thing about yoga in breast cancer care in October coming out. So very, very topical to what we've spoken about on this podcast. Dr. Nina Fullershaw, thank you very much for your time today and uh, wish you all the best with the remainder of the year and all the work that the BSIO are doing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Bye. That was Precision Medicine Forum podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.